Hi, this is Professor of Photography Jeff Curto, and welcome to class session number seven of History of Photography. This class session, a little shorter than most, with two short topics. The first one, stereoscopic imagery, looking at 3D photographs from the 19th century and their importance as a form of populist entertainment. And then also the standard subject in photography, looking at what happens when photographers photograph the same subject and how do they make the choices that they make. Here we are joining our class in progress. We're going to talk a little bit this afternoon about stereo photography uh, and about how it had a tremendous impact on the growth of photography in a general way and on photography as a sort of populist medium. Stereo images were taken with cameras that looked like this or this, and those cameras had two lenses. Those two lenses separated about the same distance apart as the human eyes, about two and a half or so inches, and those two lenses set up to make two simultaneous exposures on a single glass plate with a little septum in between that divided the two pictures so that they were two pictures taken from slightly different points of view. So imagine, if you will, just putting your hand up here. Andrew's doing it because Andrew says that he knows that he should do everything I do, right? Put your hand up here on the bridge of your nose like this and just close one eye alternately, alternate. Come on, Beth, come on, yeah, here we go. You know, what you're seeing is a slightly different point of view, right? You see the palm of your hand or the back of your hand, the back of your hand, the palm of your hand. So these two lenses are taking two pictures from slightly different points of view and then are viewed through a viewer that looks like this or like this one that I have up here in the front. Uh, when you pick this thing up, by the way, the little handle's kind of floppy, so you just have to be a little careful. You can't really just hold it by the handle. Oops. Oh, no, go back. Okay. So you just have to hold it, like, you know, a little more carefully like that. All right. So the viewer has a little septum in the middle, and that septum divides the image that is in the, in the, uh, in the viewer so that you only see the left-hand image with your left eye, the right-hand image with your right eye. And what it recreates is the illusion of the third dimension, the illusion of the third dimension, sort of like putting stereo headphones on where the music no longer seems to be coming from in front of you but kind of inside your head in a sort of strange way. Uh, the stereoscopic image seems to be volumetric. It seems to actually exist in, in some sort of volume. This little girl over here is looking down through a much fancier stereo viewer, uh, something that would be you know, sitting on somebody's home uh, parlor table uh, where uh, there might be a box of stereo cards uh, next to the table. And I've just put a general selection here of some stereoscopic images up here so you could see the sort of variety of things that are there. So a question I want to ask you is what does television do for us? You know, we sort of talked about this a while back, but you know, what does television give us right now? TV shows. TV shows. Give me more detail. It Andrew. gives us what somebody thinks we need to see. It gives us what somebody thinks we need to see. That's an important consideration. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Entertainment. Say again? Entertainment. Entertainment. Like, like what kind of entertainment? Comedies. Comedies. Dramas. Dramas. News. News. 
sports, action, action, political, political commentary, political reporting, which could fold into news, but you know, probably a different category. What else? Anybody ever watch a cooking show? Infomercials. Infomercials, advertisements, right? It's one of the things that television brings us a lot of. Everybody nodded that they'd watched a cooking show, so that might fall into a category of how to, right? How to do something. Anybody ever actually cook something from a cooking show? No. You know? Yeah, every once in a while. Every once in a while, but usually I have to go to the website of the program to find the thing to you know, cook it. But. So television gives us all that stuff. And in the 19th century, stereographic imagery gave 19th century citizens all of that stuff. It filled exactly the same role that television does for us today. It did all the same stuff that TV does for us now. It was, like television is for us now, a passive spectator activity that was more than just a kind of a toy. So, so it lets you see places that you would never go. Lets you see places you would never go or, or would be difficult for you to go to. So uh, some of us have probably uh, had a similar experience with another kind of device that also recreated the third dimension of death. Any of us have that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the Viewmaster, right? Yeah. And in my case, I had Viewmaster when I was a child, and my children, here's my, my younger guy, Luca, uh, had a Viewmaster as a child. One of the interesting differences, though, is that when I was a child and had a Viewmaster, the Viewmaster reels that were available for me to look at were in some ways more similar to the 19th century Viewmaster or the 19th century stereographic images, in that I remember seeing pictures of faraway places, the Swiss Alps, Paris, those kinds of things. Whereas most of the things that my kids looked at on Viewmaster were cartoon type things. Of course, because they were a lot less expensive to produce in the 20th century, late 20th, early 21st century, than, than uh, photographs might have been back in the middle of the, 19th, the, middle of the 20th century. Did natural, natural, National Geographic put out stuff? I don't know. I don't know if National Geographic put out stereoscopic images. It might have made sense if they had, but... But for Viewmaster? For Viewmaster? I don't know. I don't know. We'd have to look that one up. So here's somebody who has uh, kind of taken a modern twist on this. <laughs> They've taken the, uh, the, the stereoscopic viewer from the 19th century and mounted twin iPods you can tell it's fairly old school, right, because they're older iPods, but twin iPods in there. Uh, and if you put twin images made with twin lens cameras in those iPods, you'd recreate the stereo effect. So the stereo pod, um, kind of an idea. So uh, stereo cameras, stereo cameras. So these cameras were... Uh, a, a sort of uh, a alternative to some of the larger cameras that we have, uh, that we've seen already. So if one of these photographers was going out into the world with their large mammoth plate cameras of 16 by 20 or 20 by 24 plates, they might also take along a camera that was uh, like one of these, a twin lens stereoscopic camera. 
And of course, they would do that for the same reason that a lot of other kinds of uh, businesses might diversify their business model. So if you were making 20 by 24 and 16 by 20 and 11 by 14 inch images, you might also make images on plates that were small enough that you wouldn't have to lug around quite as much glass plate material to be able to make these pictures. So uh, one of the things that's fascinating about these images is the volume of them. Huge numbers of them. Most of the companies that sold these in a catalog type form, either selling them in stores, selling them by mail, selling them door-to-door -door sales, had somewhere in the neighborhood of 100,000 views, 100,000 images. So it took this idea of travel, transport, going to places that you couldn't otherwise go, and mass-produced it. And the machinery that made these things began to become steam-produced, steam-driven, rather, so that the industrial age kind of informed all of this. You can see here with this camera, there's a little uh, uh, shutter release that you can sh release both shutters at the same time. I put this one up here because I just love the sort of anthropomorphic view of, you know, sort of the wally of cameras. Um, take a picture with me. Would that be scary to some people? Entirely possible. Probably a little more frightening than the single lens camera, right? Um, but a couple more cameras give you some sense of the types of cameras these are. And this one also gives us a chance to look at something that we haven't really talked about at all, and that is apertures. Apertures. So in the early days of photography, the kind of diaphragm-type aperture that we have that opens and closes really wasn't available. There wasn't really any need for it. Instead, they used these things. You can see that they were kept in these little leather pouches here. And they were slid into a slot in the top of the lens. And as you can see, they are holes of varying sizes. And so you would stop the amount of light entering the camera, stop it down by using a smaller aperture ring or an aperture stop. So it's one of those places when you think, where did the word F stop come from? It's a stop. It's stopping the amount of light coming into the camera. So the adjustable diaphragm wasn't something that was seen until the later part of the 19th century on into the 20th century. So these little things, these uh, uh, little pieces of metal were inserted into the lens barrel. And obviously you would use, in a twin-lens camera, you would use these two pieces, uh, two of them that were simultaneously the same size. So, yes? You wouldn't have to, but of course this was a way to control light, depth of field, right? It's a way to control light, so we change the exposure time, but it's also primarily the way that we change depth of field. So the smaller the stop, the greater the depth of field. So no, you wouldn't have to, but obviously the more you, uh, uh, the more you stopped down, uh, the, the, the greater your depth of field. So one of the things that's interesting about stereoscopic imagery is that it became a huge populist thing. Almost every home had a stereo viewer. 
it would be just as unusual in, say, 1890 to walk into somebody's home and not find a stereo viewer as it would for us to walk into somebody's home today and not find a television. So the stereo camera is the thing that makes the stereo right. so pictures. The viewer, is what you're saying is common. the viewer is really common. Okay. Most people didn't have a stereo camera, okay. but most people had a viewer. And if and what they usually had was something like we saw that little girl looking down into, at least in the early days of stereoscopic imagery. And that was until Queen Victoria saw stereoscopic images at a big giant exhibition at the Crystal Palace. There's the Crystal Palace on the right. The Crystal Palace was a huge glass and steel building erected in London uh, for a particular exhibition of industrial kinds of uh, information, industrial displays. During the Industrial Revolution, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, they had this huge display of all kinds of engines and different mechanisms and so forth and so on that were becoming more and more important. And one of the things that was on display was a set of stereo views and a stereo viewer. And Queen Victoria came by the place where these things were being displayed and was absolutely fascinated by them. And because she was fascinated by them and because she was the Queen of England, the stereo view became so much more important because she kind of put her stamp of approval on the stereo view. And uh, what happened after that was a proliferation of photographers making stereo images, camera manufacturers making stereo cameras, publishing houses publishing these stereo pictures, and also, lastly but not leastly, a number of stereo viewers. Stereo viewers becoming so much more important because now the marketplace has... Uh, this opportunity to expand the world of stereo viewers. So many of them were kind of glorified versions of the one I have up on the table here, you know, handsome kind of objects. You know, and this one, I, I love this one because it kind of has a steampunky kind of a feel to it uh, with its, uh, you know, sort of mechanical looking set of stuff. Uh, and these were extremely popular, but not nearly as popular as the Holmes Stereo Viewer. The Holmes Stereo Viewer, which, you know, I saw a couple of you just like cast your eyes down, is really more or less what I have here. Holmes, Oliver Wendell Holmes, yup, the same exact guy that we talked about a few weeks ago with regard to uh, travel photography and the idea of armchair travel, came up with this idea of using a stereo viewer, creating a stereo viewer, that he said would be priced to be available within the range of all classes, meaning that anybody could afford one of these things. And his objective was to put more stereo views into the hands of more and more people. So Holmes thought this was an incredible deal, that Remember his enthusiasm about the idea that photography and travel and transport, remember how excited he was? And remember how he was really exhorting his fellow citizens to, hey, pay attention to how cool it is 
that you can sit in your parlor and look at a stack of pictures and not have to lift a finger, not have to pay the guides, and not have to book passage on a ship. So Holmes thought this was incredibly important. And because of that, uh, he exhorted people to really pay attention to these kinds of pictures. And one of the things that he said in, in written form, he said, the time will come when a man who wishes to see any object, natural or artificial, will go to the imperial, national, or city stereographic library and call for its skin or form. Remember he was talking about skinning objects? as he would for a book at any common library. We do now distinctly propose, Holmes goes on to say, the creation of a comprehensive and systematic stereographic library where all men can find the special forms they particularly desire to see as artists or as scholars or as mechanics or in any other capacity. Already a workman has been traveling around the country with stereographic views of furniture showing his employer's patterns along the way and taking orders for them. This is a mere hint of what is coming. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's fascinating to think that this guy is essentially saying what? The internet. The internet, right? <laughs> he really is. He's saying Google images because that's really what we can do, right? We can call up the skin or form of any object just about in the whole world. And he says, how cool would it be if you could go to the imperial or state or city stereographic library and look up anything you wanted to look up? You know, we've sort of somehow leapfrogged over or avoided or sidestepped the stereographic part of that. You know, the stereo TV phenomenon kind of like, you know, right? Sort of came and went without us knowing it. Uh, so the Keystone View Company was one of the big publishing houses that sold a lot of stereo views. And here is their tour of the world, which looks like what? Encyclopedia. <laughs> looks like an encyclopedia set, right? So if you had that sitting on your shelf, your bookshelf in your house, it wouldn't look a whole lot different from any of the other books that were in your library. This is how people were perceiving these things. So it's a tour of the world. And so as we kind of begin to look at some of these stereoscopic images, and we'll look at a huge number of them. I've got several of them up here on the table, which we can look at uh, uh, during, a, during a little break here. Um, that one of the things that's fascinating when we look at these pictures is that they cover the waterfront. They are all of the things that we talked about that television does for us. They are the same thing. Travel like we have here with these uh, natives who have captured uh, you know, a giant beastie beast. And a parade of some sort celebrating something, perhaps the 4th of July it appears. And places, either the far west, here's Carlton Watkins, Watkins' new series of the Yosemite Valley. So while these photographers were making their mammoth plate images, they were also making smaller stereoscopic images. Here, I think this one is uh, Ireland, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And 
some of the other things that we've talked about when we talked about what television does for us. Humor or fiction. So let's see if we can dissect this one. We've got uh, father here with his hands on his hips glaring at the young couple who seem to have fallen asleep in one another's arms. Mother looking at the clock with a candle in her hand. And the, the <laughs> caption of the, of the picture is bliss. But what is it? You know, it's wake up little Susie, right? Right. <laughs> really is what it is. You know, it's, you know, they fell asleep in each other's arms. Father's irritated. Mother's looking at the clock. Uh, and they are unaware because they are blissfully asleep in each other's arms. It looks arms. like a, they're sitting in a love seat. Where yeah, it, I think it, it kind of looks like one of those chairs that, that like, there's yeah. one, one back that goes one way and one back that goes the other way so yeah. that you sit in it and, you know, you could sort of lean over and kiss or whatever, you know? So, like, well, kind of like that. I've just seen these things, you know, they're, yeah, they're like an S shape. So one person sits facing this way, the other person sits next to them facing the other way, and they can kind of like, you know, and it keeps the naughty bits from each other, right? So, you know, it's a good 19th century strategy because you can do the thing that's okay, but not any of the stuff that isn't, so... Uh, and uh, with, speaking of which, another stereoscopic phenomenon was erotic stereo images. One of the things that's interesting to note is that while we believe in some ways that the easy access to pornography on the internet or eroticism on the internet is something that is of our time, photography's always had this sort of lurking over there on the side somewhere else. Uh, and you know, I'm really fascinated by this one, a stereoscopic hand-colored daguerreotype. There's one of them. Talk about your fetishistic strategy, right? There's only one lovingly, painstakingly hand-colored uh, and a stereoscopic daguerreotype. And, but most of the, these images were wet plate plus albumin prints. And almost all of these were wet plate collodion, albumin print. There's another piece of the stereoscopic puzzle that's worth sort of noting. Um, and that is because these images were so immensely popular, they were widely distributed. And we had huge numbers of different kinds of pictures, types of subjects and kinds of pictures. What happened eventually is that as pictures began to become more and more popular and stereo views became more popular, the wet plate collodion negative making was still employed, but instead of printing the negatives in silver on albumin printing paper, they began to use halftone reproduction. Because they could make, instead of making 1,000 for a small amount of money, they could make 10,000 or 20,000 for an even smaller amount of money and distribute them much more widely. So that what could happen was that more and more people could have these images. So I think it was Mike who said something earlier about like these are pictures that you know what what television shows us is what people might think we want to see. So this is an interesting set of pictures here. So here's a picture of a young black guy sitting uh, barefoot under a pine tree strumming a banjo and in sort of dialect it says Tell me that you love me, darling Dinah. 
It's a halftone image, meaning that it is probably reproduced in the hundreds of thousands as opposed to the thousands of images. And it's also sort of sloppily hand-colored. Uh, I have the original up here if anybody wants to look at it. So there's some yellow that's been applied to the back of the forest and a little bit of brown on the trees and you know some blue on his blue jeans and his shirt and so forth. So it is one of a series of images. Here is another one. A new coon in town. Now, it's for us one of those places where we kind of go, you know, we don't even really know where to go. But here's what's happening in the 19th and early 20th century. These pictures are being distributed in huge numbers. Now, I don't want to equate stereoscopic imagery with stereotype, right? I mean, in a way, I am sort of doing that, but, but don't mistake these two things, right? But one question that we have to answer with regard to looking at photography's history is how photography helps establish and continue stereotype. And here's part of it, right here, in front of us. And it's so interesting because of how these images pushed ideas out in front of people that, you know, as Mike said, what other people think we want. Which, you know, of course, is being used as fodder for humor in the back rooms of, you know, white civilized society in a, in a time period where black Americans, in this case, are being shunted aside and you know, moved aside. So one of the things that I like to point out is that in most of our time together in this class and this semester, we look mostly at pictures that are intended to push us upward, look farther, you know, look out ahead, go into distant places, encounter difficult ideas and push them behind us. But it's important to note that photography also does the opposite thing. It always has and it always will. And we have to figure out how to navigate that water. We have to figure out how to get from point A to point B. And we have to figure out how photography has done these kinds of things in our society over time. Um, and, and, and figure out how we can kind of navigate that, that, uh, that water as well. So. Uh, Again, I don't want to exactly conflate stereoscopic imagery and stereotype, but I do want you to know that these were pictures that were hugely popular, widely disseminated, and are part of how we came up with a number of the ways in which we sort of perceived, in this case, people of color. Uh, and, you know, if, if in uh, my collection of images I also had uh, pictures of uh, Asian people. They would, there is a similar set of photographs of them performing sort of basic sort of stereotype ideas about the way they were perceived. So it's not, you know, it's not specific to, to the black American race. It's a completely different sort of set of, of, of things we have to confront and the standard subject, or the choices that photographers make. Choices that photographers make. 
So standard subjects became fairly common in photography in a general way, especially in Western American landscape kinds of photographs, travel and landscape photographs. As people wanted to travel more, they also wanted to see more pictures of places that they were going to travel to. Um, and what was interesting is that people wanted to see both new things, but they also wanted to see familiar things. And they wanted to see high quality photographs of familiar things. So as standard subjects became commonplace, pictures of popular places were in greater demand. And then there was also a risk for photographers, both financially and also physically. These photographers that we've been talking about all along so far were primarily people who were trying to make a living. They were business people. They were either selling through publishers or they were working for government survey expeditions. They were trying in some way to carve out a, a piece of their lives through the business of photography. <clears throat> so when we talk about those Western American landscape photographers, who were photographing these broad open spaces west of where we're sitting right now. It wasn't only the land itself that was of interest, but also what the land could do for our expanding young country. That American sense of self and self-consciousness that we've talked about was growing stronger all the time. And the early journals described not only the unusual sites, but also return again and again to phrases like, you know, how we must look out here. And travel photographers who went out to make these photographs were also not just interested in the land and not just interested in pursuing photographing these beautiful places. But they were also competing against each other for the same marketplace, new ways to see the same subjects. New subjects were risky because they risked low sales. Uh, and there was also, of course, the risk of traveling into unknown places, the, the risk of, you know, unfriendly natives, the risk of being out in the natural world in, a, in, a, in an unfamiliar environment, so forth and so on. So over the few years that I've been teaching this class on this particular topic, I have become more firm about the way in which I state this piece. For a while, I sort of assumed that students would infer this from looking at the idea of looking at standard subject matter. and. Eventually, I discovered that I just needed to hit you over the head with it, which is that this little section of class has two functions. It has a historical function, photo history function, and that is look at standard subject images as a way of amplifying the 19th century landscape photographer's world. Yes, we're going to do that for the next few minutes. But also, a secondary concern is to find out what sorts of choices all photographers have to make when we make photographs. And this includes you and me and everybody else who is currently photographing. Because one of the things that I want you to think about is a reason that we have a class like this is to help you think through the process of why you're making photographs and how you're making photographs. By looking at the fact that your choices that you're making in today's world are not a whole lot of different, a whole lot different from the choices that these photographers who we'll look at for the next few minutes have had to make as well. So the question that I'm trying to ask or answer here, uh, ask and answer, I guess, is if you take away the choice of subject, in other words, if you tell a photographer, 
everybody in this room must photograph the exact same thing, what choices does the photographer have left to make? And it seems to me that it boils down to these four essential things. Light, point of view, field of view, and format. Light, the quality of light, the quantity of light was obviously very important in the 19th century. How much light was on the subject? The type of light? The point of view. One of the basic tenets of my approach to photography has always been that the hardest thing for any photographer to figure out is where to stand. It's really the, ultimately, the most perplexing question about photography. Far more perplexing than aperture and shutter speed and focal length and you know, so forth and so on. Where do you stand? How do you make the most of the subject that you're confronting by choosing where it is that the camera is placed in space? Field of view. Inclusion or exclusion. We talked a little bit already in this class about how photographers are editors. Our job is to remove all the stuff that is in the world to make a picture that matters. Whereas the painter's job is to add up. Right? They start with a blank. We start with everything. And so we have to figure out what to include, what to exclude from our frames. Format. Whether or not the photographer chooses a vertical format or a horizontal format as being appropriate for the subject. So light, point of view, field of view, and format are all things that photographers have to choose. So in these few pictures that I'm going to show you, what we're going to look at are photographers photographing in places that was really common for them to go and photograph. So Carlton Watkins, the Lyell group from Sentinel Dome, Yosemite Valley. Here is Carlton Watkins in 1866. And what we can see is that he's established essentially three planes, a foreground, a midground, and a background. So he's established three planes. He doesn't give us any place in the foreground to stand, so we kind of have a feeling of projecting out into space. So here he is in 1866. And if we go forward one year in 1867, here's Edward Moybridge. Now, we know, first of all, that Moybridge and Watkins were rivals. They both came from San Francisco. They both traveled to Yosemite Valley on a frequent basis to make photographs. And when we look at Moybridge's picture, made a year later, a couple of things are apparent. You'll recall that Moybridge had this ability to capture clouds through his clever application of essentially in-camera dodging. But he also includes a fourth plane, that of a foreground, giving us a place to stand. And what ends up happening then is a contrast relationship that Watkins didn't have in his previous image. That contrast relationship of light, dark, light, and then sky. Four planes as compared to, to uh, uh, Watkins' three planes. Some visual variety. And that place to stand that makes us feel a little bit more like we're a part of the scene than we otherwise might feel. Here's another one that's a little stranger uh, to talk about. Uh, this is a photograph by a lesser-known photographer named C.L. Weed, 1865, Yosemite Valley from the Mariposa Trail. 
And then here's Carlton Watkins, Yosemite Valley from the Mariposa Trail, 1865, same year. What's interesting about these two images is, you know, first of all, Watkins chops off the top of the tree in the right-hand image, which gives it much less importance, right? By not creating that beautiful triangle that weed does, we don't spend any time really looking at the triangle. Instead, we're looking farther out into the distance. It appears as though Watkins may have had a little bit more technical mastery, or maybe just a slightly darker exposure. But this guy that I've circled in the slide here is the real big deal in this picture. Remember how I tried to equate the idea of natural world with spiritual world? That in the 19th century, the natural world was sort of equivalent to the spiritual world, that, that the natural world was church, especially here in the United States where we didn't have Chartres or St. Paul's or St. Peter's, right? We didn't have any of those massive cathedrals, massive sort of structures to the other. So the natural world became the sort of place of reverence. And this guy's jaunty stance, like this, you know, sort of just hanging out, would have been perceived by the 19th century audience looking at this photograph as like, you know, somebody hollering a bad word in church. It was definitely seen as something that was less than good. Not because uh, the person is there, because we've seen plenty of pictures where people were in the, in the natural world, but because he doesn't seem to be approaching the natural world with reverence. So for the 19th century viewer, this would be a picture that would have failed as an image of this pristine natural place that was Yosemite. And Yosemite kind of became almost a metaphor for virgin land. It was sort of this perfect, almost like Eden-like place where people perceived uh, sort of an, an, an absolute perfection of the combination of all the natural features in the place. So here's Carlton Watkins in Half Dome in 1866. So the choice of light, obviously fairly dramatic. And then here is Edward Moybridge in 1867. Now Moybridge, we already remember from our time with him before, pretty dramatic guy very interested in the sort of theatrical drama that photographs can bring. I'm going to just flop back and forth between these two pictures for a second. Is, is there a standard spot? They... Boy, it sure looks like there should be, right? It looks like Moybridge went a year later and found the exact spot where the tripod legs were, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this rock in the foreground is the same rock in the foreground in Watkins' pictures as in Moybridge's pictures. And you sort of wonder, like, you know, was there a Kodak picture spot there? You know, obviously no. You know, Eastman hadn't even come out with his camera yet, another 12 years. So, uh, so we're, you know, we're looking here at, at something that is remarkable. Now remember, these guys were competitors. They knew one another. They knew about one another's work. And they're trying to outdo one another. So... If Moybridge comes back a year later and photographs from the exact same spot, what does he do? He makes a picture that's more dramatic with bigger, deeper shadows, more uh, dramatic highlights, 
so forth and so on. It looks as though even he's sort of like tried to, to emphasize the, the sort of precipitous nature of almost falling into the, into the gorge. What's yep. really remarkable is that there was probably no hiking trails, no signs. Oh, no. They were carrying yeah. all this stuff on their back. I mean, I've been to hike here, and I can't believe that they did this with all their stuff. You know, you know, hundreds of pounds of stuff, not just right. like not I mean, just I'm like sure a day pack, right? I, I can't yeah. even imagine how they got up there. And you know, remember that it, it's not only that there are no trails and no signs; they're like the first non-Native Americans to be here, you know, 1860, 1861, 62. So they've been back a few times, so they kind of have an idea of where they're headed. But also remember, and I, I think I mentioned this before, that they're getting to Yosemite Valley from their, their home base in San Francisco in, you know, wagon and mule train, right? They're not taking the superhighway and, you know, stopping at the Stuckies for a pecan run, right? So, you know, if there are Stuckies in California. I don't know if there's Stuckies in California. So, so then the other piece here is, is this set of images, Timothy O'Sullivan, the Green River, 1866. And I want you to look at these three images that O'Sullivan has shot along the Green River. And I find it really interesting. Take a guess at what's going on here, what he's up to. Well, it's, it's a survey. He is involved with the survey team, right? Right. Different times of day. Different times of day. And remember that these guys are making the photographs in the field. Wet plate collodion, coating the plate beforehand, developing it right away afterwards. So they can hold the negative up to the light and see what's going on. And they're probably savvy enough, like any of us who have you know, made a lot of photographs in a dark room, you can look at the negative and kind of judge whether you've got the exposure right and whether it's going to be a reasonably good photograph. But remember, these are 16 by 20 pictures. O'Sullivan is actually bringing back from the field three 16 by 20 plates that he's interested in enough to bring home with him. He doesn't want to scrape the emulsion off of the two bad ones. He's playing around. He's playing around with photography. He's doing the same thing that all the rest of us do of sort of saying, well, I wonder what would happen if I waited four hours and the light changed. Or I wonder what would happen if, I mean, he's obviously kept the camera in precisely the same place. But the same thing that we do when we think, well, I wonder what would happen if instead of taking a picture, you know, Beth from here, I walked over here. What would it look like? How would that be different? He's playing. He's experimenting with this medium. In his case, he's experimenting with light and the way in which light describes the subject. He's really working through that idea. So... Uh, that has to have been important enough for him to bring back those three heavy 16 by 20 glass plates. Otherwise, he would have done that same thing that we can do now, which is edit in the field. Scrape the emulsion off the plate, recoat it with another emulsion, and start over again with another subject. So here is a formation called Agassiz Rock, photographed by an anonymous photographer in 1867, Carlton Watkins in 1870, Edward Moybridge in 1872, and then Watkins comes back in 1874 and makes this kind of crazy abstract image, which I sort of figure he figures he can make because he's already got one that really accurately describes the thing. So this was a really common subject. 
It was uh, written about quite a lot, uh, not only because it's this sort of balancing rock formation, but also there was uh, a lot of written uh, sort of suggestion that it was like man in nature, a kind of phallic shape in the middle of the natural world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what's fascinating to me is to look at these four images and see how dramatically differently we perceive what it is that we're looking at, where it is in space, how the choice of light, the choice of time of day, the choice of whether or not there is someone in the picture for a sense of scale, how Watkins figures, well, I already made a picture of it that shows where it is, shows how big it is, you know, shows it to good effect, and so why not make one that's a little crazier in terms of the light on the subject. It's also interesting to note the difference between Watkins and Moybridge's pictures in terms of how great a sense we have of depth or lack of it. That in Moybridge's picture with flat lighting that seems to be axis lighting, seems like the light is coming more or less from behind Moybridge, maybe behind and to the right, to the left a little bit from our point of view, from his point of view. But it flattens the picture space out because the same amount of light is on the nearby rock as is on the faraway cliff. There's very little sense of how far away that faraway cliff is other than the sense of the scale of the trees on it and so forth. Whereas this Watkins picture is much more effective at telling us about where this thing is in space. So these photographers all sort of choosing that idea of where they are in space, where the picture is in space, so forth and so on. And then here's uh, that CL Weed again at the Vernal Falls in Yosemite, Carlton Watkins, and then this dramatic photograph from Edward Moybridge. So which one's most successful as a photograph out of these three? How come? More tonality. More tonality. Better sense of where we are. Much more dramatic picture. I mean, I, I can almost, I feel like I can hear the roar of the like river. Spring, you know, right? A lot of water. Yeah, I can feel the, I can hear it somehow because I'm so down close. Like I can almost feel the spray of the water as it's hitting the rocks. Is Weed's photograph successful? What do you think? What's the difference between Weed's photograph and Watkins' photograph, both of which include this together. same tree, right? So this is yeah. the same tree. The shutter speed. Shutter speed, longer shutter speed it appears for Weed's picture, or perhaps less good handling of the problem of making the negatives so that we get variation of water. Yeah, because it looks like the water and the sky kind of run together. Yeah, everything sort of runs together tonally Watkins here. Watkins doesn't have the sky like Weeds does. It looks also like Watkins is a little bit closer, right? He's moved in a little bit, which gives him a slightly like more looking up kind of view so that even though we get the same tree, now that tree, which is against there, we're, essentially he's cropping a little bit at the top or a little bit more at the top. So we're not really looking at as much sky. So it's interesting to look at these pictures because remember that unlike our world where we can make hundreds of pictures, in fact, Mike and I were just talking about this before class, that you know, he goes and shoots a basketball game and he's got a thousand pictures. 
you know, these guys aren't going to make a thousand pictures. They're going to be in this spot. They might take two, maybe, maybe three, maybe four if it's a big day. But they're going to make the one picture of this location that they know will work, and maybe another one that's sort of a guess about something that they think might work. Because they have a limited amount of storage on which to put their pictures. They have to work with the glass plates they brought with them. They're out there for maybe two or three weeks. It takes them maybe a week or 10 days to get to the location and another week or 10 days to get back. So you got to think through how these guys are doing this and think about the way in which photographers are editing as they shoot. Mike, goes. I think Ansel Adams was climb, climbing up some rock formations to take a picture. But he saw so many interesting things when, on the way up, they took pictures when he got to the, the point. The thing he wanted, he only had one plate left, right? Yeah. Actually, two. So the story he tells is that he had one, made that picture, and he makes the, the picture that kind of makes him famous on his last. We'll, we'll actually talk about, about that image, the half-dome half dome image. And then this format question is also interesting. Because here is El Capitan in Yosemite Valley, and Watkins in the upper left, Moybridge at the bottom, and Watkins again over on the right-hand side. Now, for those of us who are most familiar with this subject from an Ansel Adams photograph, the right-hand photograph by Watkins looks most like what we would expect this subject to look like. But what's so fascinating to me is how simply changing from a vertical to a horizontal format, including a bit more of this rock formation, changes everything about how we perceive what it is that the object is, and how we think through what that object is going to look like. So how do we record it? How much do we put in? How little do we leave out? You know, what else are we going to put in the frame in order to tell the story effectively? It's also interesting to note how Moybridge's picture makes far less of a big deal out of, even though there's a lot of foreground stuff, he hasn't organized it nearly as well as Watkins has in either of these two images. So he hasn't quite gotten a, a good organization of it to kind of lead our eye into the background the way Watkins does over here, or to provide us with some interesting stuff to really look at in nearby foreground as Watkins does over there. So those questions of height, distance, angle, format, people, light, quality of light, quantity of light, um, and those choices that all photographers have to make. Which then brings us to one last very brief kind of subject, which has to do with re-photography. Re-photography, something that has become more and more popular over the last, oh, you know, maybe three or four decades now. The re-photographic survey project was conceived in 1977, and it was an effort to locate and re-photograph the sites of government survey expeditions from the late 19th century. The entire project consisted of 120 pairs of images, the old image from the 19th century and new ones from the 20th century. The chief photographer, Mark Klett, articulated the method of this project's idea. Um, and in the end, it was a remarkable look at the influence of time on nature, 
but also a remarkable look at the way in which these photographers approached the subject of their photographs. So when we look at these images, <clears throat> in this case, here is Mark Klett's photograph from 1978, and here's the government survey photograph from the 1870s, so about 100 years apart. And what these photographers tried to do, Klett and Rick Dingus and so forth, is not only recreate exactly where the camera was, but also recreate the exact time of day, day of the week, day of the month, month of the year. So in other words, they're not just sort of like going to find the exact camera spot. They're finding the exact camera spot on the same day as near as they could figure by using shadows in the photographs and recollections and written accounts of the, of the making of these pictures. And one of the things they discovered was how dramatically different what the photograph originally looked like to what it is that they needed to make in order to make a photograph that exactly mirrored what the 19th century photographer had done. So here, Dingus's camera is leveled, but the 19th century photographer had not leveled their camera. Instead, they had sort of changed the level of the camera to kind of create the sort of backward-leaning stones, where in fact in the original scene, the stones are going straight up and down. So they not only are looking at the exact locations, but they're really carefully trying to recreate everything, including focal length of lenses, uh, exactly to kind of figure out how those photographers made these pictures. So here's Timothy O'Sullivan in 1867 up on the top left, Mark Klett in 1979, and then from 1997 until 2000, Mark Klett worked with another group of photographers and a writer to update the second view re-photographic project. In third views, second sites, that was the name of, the, of their second project, which they accomplished in the 90s, late 90s, and early 2000s. So it was another re-photographic survey of the American West. They revisited and photographed a lot of the same locations that had been photographed more than 20 years before, and trying to see whether in that shorter period of time things had changed. There's O'Sullivan, then Klett, then Klett and Byron Wolf down here at the bottom. And then they began to explore the idea of making modern photographs and juxtaposing them with the photographs from the 19th century and making something entirely different. Rather than sort of a scientific survey of what it was that these places looked like, they began to make sort of contemporary photographs that began to be commentary on those 19th century photographs. <clears throat> so this book is in our library, Third View, Second Sights, uh, and it's a pretty interesting, pretty interesting book in terms of looking at the, especially if you're interested in the photographs of the American West, uh, really interesting in terms of looking at these photographs of a virgin landscape and then photographs of that landscape as it existed in the latter part of the 20th and early part of the 21st century. And then last but not least, uh, a friend of mine uh, named uh, Bruce Myron has uh, just recently completed 
his 40th parallel project. He writes about this project, the 40th parallel roughly bisects the country and runs from the New Jersey shoreline through Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Missouri, running along the border of Nebraska and Kansas, traversing Colorado, Utah, Nevada, and ending in California. I photographed the 40th degree of latitude across the United States at every whole degree of longitude. So he photographed it all the way across the US along the 40th parallel for every whole degree of longitude. After living with the project for a while, I've learned even more about this line and its wide-ranging and cross-disciplinary importance. In the 1760s, the 40th parallel was thought to be the border of Pennsylvania and Maryland and was the initial reason for the laying of the Mason-Dixon line. Between 1867 and 1879, Clarence King, who later became the first director of the U.S. Geological Survey, surveyed part of the 40th parallel from California to Colorado, accompanied by photographer Timothy O'Sullivan. So his project is really kind of a modern take on this rephotographic survey. Shot with 8 by 10 cameras, he'd find the exact location using GPS information so that the center of his camera's tripod screw was directly over that location exactly between the parallel and the degree of longitude, and then make a, a set of three panoramic images with his 8x10 view camera. So each one of these is an 8x10 inch image. And he's literally just, he's just completed this, uh, this project. Um, and he says, by chance, Interstate 40 weaves in and around the parallel from New Jersey through Ohio and across the west to California. Uh, so uh, his project is sort of another part of this rephotographic survey. 